Welcome back, everyone, to the Birds of a Feather Talk Together podcast. Uh, We've got a really exciting episode this week as we talk about the Birds of Paradise. Shannon and John are both experts on the Birds of Paradise and teach us a lot of fun things about them, from their mating rituals to all their exotic coloring and what makes them so unique. Um, It's really fun to discuss. Um, So thanks for joining us. We invite you to sit back, relax, grab your binoculars, and let's take a look at the Birds of Paradise. Um, so this is episode number two, and uh, we were going to talk about the birds of paradise a little bit. So I know that there's a, a lot of different species of birds of paradise. Um, do we want to talk about a particular one to start with? Uh, maybe one of the specimen that you have at the Field Museum? And actually, there aren't that many birds of paradise species. Okay. Like, depending on whose taxonomy, 43 to 45. Mm. But they get outsized excitement because mm. of what they look like and how they dance and how they behave and uh, stuff like that. So one of the things that always is interesting to other people is if you look at the tree of life for birds, birds of paradise are in the part of the tree of life that have crows. Mm. So our crows, which are, no offense, kind of (laughs) dull in (laughs) pattern and color. Mm -hmm. It's not always true, but compared to birds of paradise. So our crows are cool. They have the density of neurons that higher primates have. So if someone Mm. calls you a bird brain, it's actually a compliment. (laughs) But (laughs) they certainly don't look or have the charisma in that sense of uh, of birds of paradise. Mm. I mean, it's hard to imagine birds like that even exist because I don't think humans have the imagination that evolution provided to make all of the kinds of birds of paradise there are. All the elaborated feathers, all the incredible displays, Mm. uh, all the interesting innovations associated with how those feathers move, Mm. the nerves and muscles that are at the bases of these feathers to let them, you know, manipulate them in their displays. Birds of Paradise are exciting. When we we show people Birds of Paradise in the collection, which as you know, it happens to be right next to the gee whiz drawer is where the Birds of Paradise are. Mm. One of the things that, you know, that I think people are always amazed by is the fact that this is all about sexual selection, and the males have all these incredible uh, adornments and things, and the females are cryptically colored and basically designed to be as unobtrusive as they can because they literally are the the sex that makes things happen. I mean, they're they're the ones that are going to take care of the nestlings and, and incubate the eggs. Yeah, and the things. males leave. They uh, dance, uh. have sex, and leave. <laughs> <laughs> they, well, they don't help at the, they don't build nests. They yeah. don't help at the they nests. They don't do anything but dance. And <laughs> <laughs> but it's the females that are choosing. Mm-hmm. So we always, we focus, and this is true kind of across birds and through history of ornithology, this, that we focus on males, because it's usually males that we think of as brightly colored, males that are singing, males that are displaying. But really, a lot of groups, it's the changes in female plumages. There are a lot more of those than there even are of males, because all the males might be brightly colored, but there's something to learn if the females are changing through evolutionary time, being brightly colored or not. Mm. But it's the females that are doing the choosing. Mm. So the males have to impress a female, and they go to elaborate lengths. And when females prefer males that have a novelty, you get 
novelties, mm. a lot of them, and they oh, go to extremes, like a peacock's tail, for example. Mm. That tail certainly is not going to help a peacock run away from a predator, mm. but it is super-duper attractive for mm. females <laughs> yeah, to look yeah. like that. And so um, the ornamentation on birds of paradise is really unlike I don't Unlike any other group of birds, I think there are a lot of bird groups that have dancing and really interesting displays. But the birds of paradise, and, and this is a situation where technology has kind of revolutionized our appreciation of this too. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of these species, most birds of paradise, uh, the are on New Guinea. There are a few species that get off the island, um, but they live in very dense forests. They're they can they've it's dangerous for us. It's not an easy place to go work mm-hmm. in. And there was a group from a uh, combination of, of folks from National Geographic Society and Cornell that spent seven or eight years of field time getting to the most remote sites in New Guinea and getting high quality video of these dancing displays. And so I think that's been something that has just been marvelous to me because it was just, mm. again, unimaginable to have that kind of video of what these things were doing. But oh, yeah. the really fun thing for me, the novel thing of what they did is that they photographed and filmed the birds from the bird's eye view. So oh, not yeah. from like me standing on the ground with my binoculars looking up at a bird of paradise where mm. it might look cool, but mm. when they went up and saw it from the female's vantage point, the birds look completely different, and so do their dances. So there are parts of their feathers, patterns, uh, that you don't see from the ground. And uh-huh. so if you want to know why females are choosing or what they're choosing, you've got to go up in the tree sometimes, or you, you have to look down on from on top, because a female might be on top looking down on the bird. So if you're underneath looking up, you're not seeing what the bird, the female bird who's doing the choosing is seeing. And so the innovation of both taking that technology into pretty hard to get places, but to also think about being a bird and not a human, mm-hmm. which is kind of what you have to do to really un- provide data that helps you understand for real what these birds are doing. So oh, that yeah. was pretty revolutionary. It really changed how uh, I look at the birds of paradise that I always sh- show people when we're in the museum. My favorite specimen is a bluebird of paradise um, by far. I didn't know that right away, but as soon as I started giving tours, I picked that bird up first every time. (laughs) Even though there are lots of other cool birds, they just like all fade away (laughs) to the bluebird of paradise, Uh which has these. Every time I look at that, I think of all the functions of feathers. That's why I love that bird so much is we think of feathers evolving for heat conservation. You think of them for flight. Um, but there's no reason they have to look like that, mm-hmm. right? The wings can function as a airfoil to give you lift and help you fly without being bright blue. Mm-hmm. And, you know, things can keep you warm without looking like velvet or uh, lace or all the other patterns that come out when you start looking at those And so the idea that females can choose, and there's enough underlying variation, genetic variation, to let all those things play out over, you know, millions, tens of millions of years of evolutionary time is really cool. And it always strikes me that there's got to be something different about birds of paradise and how they make make feathers Mm -hmm. that is unique to that 
group that has enabled them to explore a lot more of plumage space mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. than other birds than other birds do. So yeah. you know, there's just such a an experiment, and anybody should go look at videos online. Yeah, of Birds of Paradise. Yeah. yeah, I remember like when Planet Earth, the David Attenborough show, came out. Like the Birds of Paradise, I wasn't familiar with them until seeing that, and it just blew my mind. I was like, oh my gosh, this is so incredible. So are you with um with your specimen are you like able to display them the way that they would look when they're mating is that something like what are doing <laughs> doing the dance yeah, <laughs> If you go into public exhibit areas yeah, yeah. a lot of times they will try to pose them as they mm-hmm. might mm-hmm. in life. And, okay. And actually our bluebird of paradise that's in the main exhibit area is actually hanging upside down, which is how these birds display. Wow. Oh. Wow. And, and it's it's yeah. the feathers on the tail spread out and make this spectacular pattern that you wouldn't see if the bird was sitting upright. And wow. So, yeah, I mean, we, we definitely try to do that. That's one of the cool. things that uh, – Museums think about a lot. And yet but it unfortunately, the Field Museum is one of the only places where you can take a trip through the Tree of Life for birds in a public exhibit space mm-hmm. because that was considered like a cabinet of curiosities. And a lot of museums don't devote space to that mm-hmm. anymore. And so they've oh. taken them all back oh. behind the scenes and put them back in the collections. But it was really important for for Field Museum to, to keep that... Um, we teach using it, so we bring students in there using the collections in the public exhibit areas, and you really can get a flavor of the diversity of birds in a way that you it would be hard to do upstairs because we have so many. You would I don't know how many steps you'd get, but it would be more than ten thousand steps in a day to kind of traverse the tree of life in our actual collections. But, okay, um, to see them like that is I think a real treat, and we updated the exhibit, you know, 10 years ago now to have modern taxonomy in it because now that we're doing a lot of work on the Tree of Life for Birds, there's all kinds of things we didn't know that Mm. we do know now. So Mm. there's a whole bunch of birds of paradise that for, you know, centuries Mm. (laughs) have been with birds of paradise. And when people started using DNA-based characteristics to look at the tree, well, some of them don't. Mm. Oh. They don't. They're not birds of paradise, even though they oh. have bird of paradise in their name. They're not. Oh. So, <laughs> and and some things that never were near them before. When you actually make a tree, a high quality tree with high quality data, well, then these ones are more closely related than the ones we used to think. And okay. that happens throughout birds. That with rigorous analysis and a combination of both molecular and morphological data, we've completely changed what we think about the bird tree of life. Okay. So. Wow. Yeah. And then of the specimen that you have then, I mean, so did some of the, any of them come from Wallace? So, I, I mean, we, we've been reading um, The Feather Thief and they're just kind of learning about Wallace and all his contributions. Um, so, I mean, I, I think we, if we're talking about Birds of Paradise, need to at least mention him and his collection. Well, that's um, an interesting thing. So, so one of the, the specimens that I like showing people that we have is of a greater bird of paradise, which is this uh, uh, fairly widespread species, um, and it, it gets to the Aru Islands. And if you look at the tag on this specimen, it's uh, it dates to the Rothschild collection, which is a, a, a collection that was made by a baron in, in the England who got specimens from around the world. And somebody has written on this tag, 
old specimen collected by Wallace Aru Islands. Oh, wow. And so, in theory, that could be a Wallace specimen. But I always like to point out that the data on tags tells you a lot about the history of those birds. And clearly, somebody thought that bird was collected by Wallace, but it wasn't Wallace himself who mm. left oh. a tag on that bird that clearly oh. indicated that he collected it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, if you look in the literature, you can find that in about 1853 or so, when Wallace was working in the Malay Archipelago, he was in the Arrow Islands, and he actually wrote a paper on the display of greater birds of paradise. Mm. So it's conceivable that it could be a specimen that was collected by Wallace, but I always like to point out that it was received on exchange from the American Museum of Natural History in one of the, the things Shannon was talking about in an earlier episode with respect to trading specimens. And I think the willingness of AM&H to trade that specimen was predicated on the fact that they really didn't know that that was a Wallace specimen or they probably wouldn't have done it. And yet, okay. I think it's a good chance it is. Yeah. Now, that particular bird, though, is a really great story because its scientific name is Paradisia apoda. And apoda means without feet. And I always like to point out that this is another aspect of early specimens. Well, that bird was described to science by uh, Carolus Linnaeus, who was this Swedish uh, researcher in the 1600s who was came up with the binomial system of nomenclature. And he was getting bird or he was getting life, so birds and everything else from all over the world. And whoever sent him a greater bird of paradise, prepared the specimen with no legs. Uh, and he described it to science as never landing. <laughs> and it is, we like to point out in the collection, if you look at this bird of paradise, this greater bird of paradise that we have that says uh, collected by Wallace, you can very clearly see it's got perching bird feet just like all other perching birds. And it took about 30 to 40 years for the scientific community to realize that Linnaeus had a specimen that didn't have complete <laughs> <laughs> complete morphology with it. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, there are all kinds of quirky stories. Oh yeah, you know, nested within all of these birds. But mm -hmm. yeah, so when I look at that bird of paradise, that blue bird of paradise, the reason I pull it out is because mm -hmm. it's blue first off, and I am fascinated by how colors get made. Mm -hmm. So there's actually no blue in that bird. Oh, um, blue is a structural color, so it's the way the keratin and air are inside of the well, either the barb or the barbules of a feather because either one of them can be filled with different things and make different colors and uh -huh. and that's what and it scatters blue light back to your eyes the same way when it rains you don't get blue dye on you um, it's not exactly the same but the pro yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's right. kind of similar yeah. to that and so it's the structure of the feather that makes blue light come back to your eyes there's almost no blues in nature wow. blues are almost always structural colors some plants have blues but mm. it's really not common butterfly wings again that's a structural um, property mm. reds yellows um, browns and blacks those are pigment based colors and okay. so um, when if you wanted to ruin a bird of paradise you would just smash its feathers because if you smash its feathers they don't they're not going to be any blue anymore they'll go they'll turn brownish grayish oh, wow. kinds of colors which i didn't even think about doing that but someone who works with us did that in front of me one day she oh. took a <laughs> bird feather and smashed it and i'm like holy cow oh, wow. <laughs> it went gray wow um but yeah and wow. so there's all these and then there's all these fantastic colors in birds of paradise 
uh, super black, which is a new like super duper black color that's oh. been described recently. Um, it's like the absence of of any color, right? It's, is yeah, that, it's like so black that even, it's like it, yeah, 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 densest of dense wow. okay. blacks. And so when you look wow. at birds and you think about how they might have made all of those colors, and you think of the colors getting potentially selected on two, but how do you go from something that might have brown or um, pigments in its black pigments in its wings? How do you get a blue? How do you get blue from that? What happened yeah. to make that? Hmm. Um, and so I, that's every time I look at that bird, I think about kind of how that might have that might have happened. And I think of it hanging upside down. And when you look at it close up, another reason why I like dead birds, if you look at it close up, you can see the, just the fantastic detail that are in the feathers. When it hangs upside down, it has this breast plate thing that it splays out. And when you look at it, even though it's all folded up and they're all laying down like little soldiers, um, you can see very clearly how demarcated the mm that is and just how, how precise mm. the the feathers are arranged and that they mm. come that they you know they evolved that way and they are developed that way mm. it's really kind of fantastic i mean what makes a cell produce these weird feathers that come out of the area around your ear yeah. wow like <laughs> and why there because yeah. <laughs> right. Weird ear feathers is kind of common huh. in, wow. in birds of paradise. So wow. why did why do they do that? Yeah, and how many of these? I mean, are a lot of these colors only on display during like mating rituals? Or I mean, a lot of the what I saw like the kind of the displays and everything. It was like they were you couldn't really see a whole lot, and then it's like all of a sudden they would open everything up. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there's 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 certainly, I mean, there's a when you're that bright, mm -hmm. you're you're opening up yourself to predation and, and oh. certainly with ornamentation, that's absolutely the case. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so the, there, there are ways in which they can probably disguise some of those colors at least part of the time mm -hmm. until they're ready to display. And, you know, I, I was thinking about this when we were talking about this earlier is, you know, one of the things is how important birds are for human culture mm -hmm. because over time, you know, the tribes in New Guinea have – witness some of these things and you can absolutely imagine how that's gotten incorporated into various uh, aspects of their you know thinking and and customs and and mm. things over time and you see that around the world oh yeah john can you yeah. give an example of that um yeah my i i think a lot of the uh if you ever get a chance to see the display of a of a satyr tragopan, which is a, a pheasant from from China, it the males hide behind these rocks and then they come up uh, with this. They have a blue face and these bright orange bodies with these spots, and they'll ruffle their wings and they're just and they it's and I'm absolutely sure that that has been picked up by people over time and incorporated into to Chinese dance and things. Mm. And, and or even into clothing. That's what I see when I watch Birds of Paradise, when I watch the videos. Of course, I've never seen a live bird of paradise, maybe in a zoo, but is the way the Birds of Paradise can finely undulate their feathers and uh, with control, with all these muscles and nerves that are at the base, and they can finally move them as part of their dance. Oh, wow. There's no doubt people are inspired by that. And mm. women's clothing um, is, 
you know, comes directly from what people experience with respect to, to, to nature. There's no question you see that. I mean, we used to hunt a lot of birds in North America to almost extinction mm-hmm. for women's fashion mm-hmm. in the early 1900s, well, and, right? So. And great, greater birds of paradise and other birds uh-huh. of paradise were mm-hmm. sought after for the same millinery trade, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, and, f- you know, for the indigenous peoples in the areas, birds in particular are, form a, a lot of the special things that they, or even the average things that they make. So there's tapestries that are full of birds um, in varying ways, including skeletons sometimes, mm-hmm. and all these feathers in these cloaks. Um, you know, South America's full of parrots, mm-hmm. um, macaws and things like that, all these fancy feathers and and things that are used in human, human rituals. Mm. And are there protections on a lot of these birds then? I mean, are there some of these countries, you know, aren't as, don't have governments like ours. I mean, are they making efforts there to make sure that they aren't hunted for feathers in certain areas? Is that kind of a common thing or are so, some of these at risk now? Yes. And at the same time, I mean, you know, a cogent argument could be made for the fact that native peoples have been doing this for a long time and can do it in a sustainable mm-hmm. way. And so, yeah. So I think there's, you know, there's a lot of variation across the world with respect mm-hmm. to what's going on in those kinds of situations. Okay. And New Guinea, I would describe as as having one of the largest uh, remaining indigenous populations where, where there isn't a lot of connection, a lot of mm-hmm. with, with the outside world in a lot of areas. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. But certainly in North America, the mm-hmm. um, uh, there have been laws that are put in place, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, for example, that mm-hmm. prevents people from sacrificing migrating birds mm-hmm. um, to protect them because they were being hunted to extinction. And, mm-hmm. and that is something that governs our what we do. Mm-hmm. You need permits to collect birds. You have to have a justification to sacrifice birds. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I think, is you know important and necessary but that doesn't mean you don't still have to do it. Mm-hmm. We have to document biodiversity. Mm-hmm. The yeah. only evidence of past life on Earth is in collections. Mm-hmm. And you can see by the amazingness of uh, passenger pigeons, Carolina parakeets, mm-hmm. that ivory-billed woodpeckers, that the only way we learn about them now is through museums. And so mm-hmm. I feel like we have mm-hmm. a sacred obligation to preserve the things that are have been collected historically and to provide immortality to birds that die anywhere near a museum so mm-hmm. they can go and become part of the collections and then scientists will tell their stories into the future too as technology changes the things we learn from specimens is yeah. constantly changing oh yeah so you know and people put the specimens in the 1800s or even the early 1900s in our collections Nobody, they didn't know what the inheritance molecule was. They didn't know what DNA was. They certainly didn't know we were going to snip off a piece of a toe pad of a hundred-year-old bird and sequence its entire genome, right? So that wasn't even conceived. And so, you know, birds are visible in ultraviolet light. So there are parts of their eyes. They see an ultraviolet. Uh, We can't see what they see. Mm. So we're kind of poor lookers of birds from oh, that perspective. Interesting. But spectrophotometry um, rose up and got more available and affordable 
And so then, you know, people started going through the collections. Do do these birds reflect in ultraviolet light? And wow. they do. Across the wow. whole tree of life, there are birds that do that. And we can't see that, but now we know um, that it happens. Yeah. And, you know, you need specimens to be able to answer these things. Yeah. It's changing technology. The specimens are always there. Our ability to look at them is completely different mm. through time. Now yeah. we can use fancy microscopes to look inside of a feather and see mm. what it is. Now we can use CAT scans to look inside of birds. John's leading a really big project, um, the bird part of this really big project, CAT scanning birds oh, wow. um, from collections all over the all over the U.S. at least. Mm. And you now that enables us to peek inside it's why I can study bird brains. Mm-hmm. Uh, it lets you peek inside without destroying the specimen, which is really wow. important. So I don't know what the next revolution will be. Mm-hmm. I just know that people will use our specimens to uh, tell more stories yeah, about yeah. them. Of the Birds of Paradise specimens that you have at the Field Museum, how many of them are extinct? And none. None. Oh, wow. Yeah. wow. Awesome. Well, we don't know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that because... Uh. I don't know how many people have looked, and we can't mm. say for sure mm. what that there are no birds of paradise that are extinct. I mean, mm. we can say that we don't have any ones that are extinct, although could be that we have populations that have gone extinct. I don't know about mm. that, but well, that's a that is an interesting thing about birds of paradise. There, there was a project um, done looking at the population variation within species, and there's an awful lot of population variation mm. across the various species that, that, you know, this is one of the things that we always find interesting uh, with respect to how we do stuff, which mm. is that how different is different enough to recognize something as a different species is, mm. a, is a whole nother aspect of this. And birds of paradise have, they live in a landscape where they're isolated in different mountain valleys across the country. And some of those have evolved slightly different shades of color and various parts of the plumage and they may have other traits that are different and you know people just haven't had a chance to look at them Mm. and i have a question i'm i am really interested in the planet earth part with the birds of paradise and we were wondering um i think they showed like several males kind of is that correct? Yeah, competing the, at yes, the same time. at the same time. Is that for real? <laughs> was that editing? <laughs> no, th- things like that happen. It's th- they um, they make leks, which means that there can be many males displaying for a female. Okay. Not all species do this. Um, but, yeah, so then again, the okay. female's choosing, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you can dance your whole life and... Mm-hmm. <laughs> never have sex <laughs> you know because you're not you know you're not high enough in the status rankings so there are uh, the new world equivalent of these are called mannequins oh. and oh. they have fancy feathers too and they make fancy noises like un- perfect harmonics that come from vibrating the wing for example mm-hmm. so you know it's not just vocalizations that coming from the vocal box of birds their feathers can make very odd noises harmonics snaps um, and mannequins are full of that, but they mm. have all these fancy dances again, where there's multiple males but, often. But but, but they're, in these cases, the males are working together oh. to attract females. Oh. Yes. Even though only one of the males, which they call the alpha male, mm. will actually 
gain a mate. copulation with yeah. mate with the female. Yeah. And and the hypothesis is that the other males are helping that male and gaining the potential to take over the territory at some point and, oh. and also probably learning mm-hmm. you know how to dance. And yeah. so a wingman. I, don't think of, I was going to say is that where wingman comes from? Yeah, it could, it could <laughs> be. Yeah. I don't you know I, I don't think birds of paradise actually have any examples like that. Of multiple males? Yeah. Uh, like 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 helping not, each other out in the same way that No, I think multiple males might display in the same area but okay. not in a cooperative okay. um, fashion. Yeah. Okay. You know, that there's a lot of questions that mm-hmm. can be that DNA has helped us answer too. And you might think that the only reason you would help is that you're related to the alpha male. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, right? Because then you can you can put more of your genes through oh. your relatives into the next generation, but that's not the case. So with DNA, we can tell that these birds are not, okay. um, you know, fathers and sons and huh. things like that. So okay. we know that now for for these birds. Yeah. But you never know. I mean, maybe they can sneak in some fun along the side. Yeah. <laughs> but you could. These are fairly long-lived songbirds, but you could spend as a male bird your entire life in a subsidiary role Um, waiting for the alpha male to die or for you to outcompete them Um, it's like scar and lion king (laughs) (laughs) is what makes them alpha that they're the most beautiful or well that's so the the, the, you know again it's the female's perception okay and Mm -hmm. so so that's still a challenge out there with respect to trying to figure that stuff out what is it that the female sees because the evidence suggests in a lot of these situations that whatever one male is doing mm-hmm. is more attractive to most females hmm. than than what the other males are doing. And so again, and 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 yet at the same time, I think in these situations, the other males are also cognizant of what's going on too. And so hmm. they're learning, and that may help drive the the kind of crazy evolution of all these dancing patterns that you actually see. Hmm. Yeah, they have, mannequins have this thing called a popcorn dance where there's a whole bunch of males and they circle around a perch and jumping up and down like popcorn and jumping over each other, sometimes Uh five to seven males, depending on the species. It's really, you should look at that too. There's really fantastic videos uh, of those too. And they have really interesting feathers. Okay. Um, Huh. As well, so there's lots of things that are like that. And the, the interesting thing about color is um, whether it's an honest signal of things. Mm-hmm. So there, there's been a, a fair bit of research done looking within, say, males within a species, and there can be differences in how red something is or how yellow something is. And the question is, do females, if females prefer things that are redder, well, you can study that. But then, what are they signaling with that? with that red. So there are a lot of hypotheses about your signaling your quality as a male, that you reject parasites better, that you have a better immune system, for example, that you have better food sources because the yellows and reds are carotenoids. They come from the diet. They might get modified in the bird before they're deposited, but they come from the diet. Mm -hmm. So are you signaling your superiority as a mate Mm -hmm. by being brighter, by, having a slightly better dance mm. than someone so but then there was a really interesting book by a guy named Rick Prum who's a he's a professor at uh, Yale University mm. 
And he, he wrote a book called The Evolution of Beauty, where he argues and very interestingly, if not a bit controversial for some, that it's just it could just be beauty itself. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. That interesting. It, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're not signaling mm-hmm. anything mm-hmm. by being slightly brighter red or anything like that. It's mm-hmm. just that maybe females just like pretty things. They're just superficial. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's enough to yeah. drive things like Birds of Paradise. It wow. might just be because they like pretty things. And if you have enough genetic variation to make pretty things, mm-hmm. pretty things are going to evolve mm-hmm. over very fast evolutionary time frames too. Mm-hmm. That's the thing about sexual selection is that it can make uh, novelties and novelties go very quickly throughout a population mm-hmm. because there's mm-hmm. such an advantage to possessing that novel characteristic. There's a there's a family in the same part of the evolutionary tree as birds of paradise called the bower birds, mm. and they're famous because the males actually build structures that they use to attract females. Mm. And at the same time, some of the species will bring in bits of color, and it's very consistent bits of color oh. that they'll they'll just find pieces of plastic and mm-hmm. things like that in areas mm-hmm. that they often live near urban areas these days. And so mm-hmm. they'll bring and they'll decorate their bower with purple mm-hmm. things. And so you know that suggests that at least in that case, maybe it is just like. Well, bubbles that'll actually yeah. get people to come. Yeah. Humans yeah. are changing the in. cultural aspects of bowerbirds mm-hmm. because they're they are leaving their garbage all over the place, mm-hmm. and that garbage is colors that nature doesn't have. There's mm-hmm. no blue, so most of the time, unless you're getting some berries or something, you're not decorating your bower mm-hmm. with blue. So they oh. create this house and then they decorate it mm-hmm. as kind of like a you know an homage for the female. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But now they're changing color preferences. Oh, wow. Um, the, the birds are based on the fact that there's a lot more blue things in their environment, bottle caps, mm-hmm. the twisty things that you pull off of a plastic bottle. Oh. And they're using things like that because if you prefer novelties, mm-hmm. if everything else in your environment is yellowish or shades of whatever, you can build the best structure with all of these beautiful sticks. I mean, they're incredibly elaborate, but... If I'm the first person, if I'm the first bird, male bird, to bring back a blue bottle cap, everybody's going to come and look at my bower. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then yeah. the, the other males are like, well, I better find some blue, too, because yeah. it's not working for me anymore. Yeah. And, you know, and so it does, it changes the culture of the birds. Wow. The, so is yeah. a bower, is it a nest? Like, is it where the female would? No, no, no. It's it's, it's, it's a it's a male built structure, and it's it's, it's just literally for just for display, and and they're huh. they're they're very interesting because they're different in different species. Wow. And so yeah, no, it's a it's a it's basically taking the bird of paradise example and going in a completely different direction. Sure, sure. It's going yeah. structural. Wow. It's like cribs. Yeah. <laughs> Bachelor pad. Yeah. Yeah. Bachelor yeah. Pad. yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you should definitely take a look at videos. Yeah. Um, so are those in Chicago? Of... No. No. Okay. Yeah. Okay. No, they're, so they're Australia and, and okay. New Guinea, okay. both. Okay. And uh, th- there's actually, there's a set up bower. I'm trying to remember the species I should be able to remember um, in the bird hall. Oh, um, oh in okay. One of the displays, okay. which is really neat. Okay. That's awesome. Great. Well, I think we're getting close on time. Um, so maybe we can do mailbag questions and then wrap it up. Sure. 
This is from uh, Pam in Steamboat Springs. Um, she said, I really enjoyed listening to episode one. Looking forward to more. <laughs> our town has a lot of pride in our sandhill cranes, which migrate through every year. Will you all do an episode on sandhill cranes? Oh, we should definitely do that because it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a spectacular story. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is a bird whose populations have come back dramatically from, mm. from the 1800s. And, and so, yeah, no, it's a neat story. And obviously cranes have all kinds of really cool aspects. We lived in Colorado, and so we would see them migrate through there. Yeah. And then I grew up in the western suburbs of Chicago, and I feel like I, we didn't see them out there. And now that we live closer to the lake, we see them migrate through. Um, but it, it was crazy, like, growing up, being not that far away from where we are now and never Their seeing them. populations you know. have expanded dramatically since oh. you were – I'm not saying you're old because mm. I'm really old, but you're not. <laughs> and uh, their populations have increased pretty oh. dramatically – over wow. our lifetimes. Wow. Oh, wow. I didn't even realize that. I didn't that realize that. Yeah. yeah. Well, we'll have to make sure to cover that on our Sand Hill Crane episode. So that's really exciting to hear. Um, and I think that wraps it up for our mailbag questions for this episode. So thanks everyone for uh, listening and for writing in. Um, please send us more uh, mailbag questions at podcast.birdsofafeather at gmail.com. Uh, we look forward to hearing from you. You've been listening to Birds of a Feather Talk Together podcast, a podcast all about birds. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We really appreciate it. Once again, we're an independently run podcast, um, and we're looking to get uh, some exposure. So please help spread the word. Um, If you love birds, if you found our topics interesting, um, please share this with someone. Please write into our mailbag as well, podcast.birdsofafeather at gmail.com. If you have any recommendations, any questions, um, we're always looking to interact. Uh, So thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We appreciate it. Um, We've got some exciting things coming up. Um, We'll have a full mailbag episode coming up soon, and we'll also focus on sandhill cranes coming up soon. So thanks, everyone, for listening, uh, and have a good one. Thank you also to Earhole Studios in Chicago for letting us record. Um, as I mentioned before, we're an independent podcast and just getting up and running, and Earhole has been so generous as to allow us to record there. Um, so we really appreciate Earhole Studios. Uh, thank you. Thank you.